Sam with Dr. Cam Murray. He's an economist specialising in property, urban development, environmental economics, rent seeking and corruption. I've been following Cam for a while on Twitter and have enjoyed his Substack and podcast called Fresh Economic Thinking. As a layperson who doesn't know that much about economics, I've been interested in how Cam compares Australia's property market with other countries, helping me understand why, frankly, our market is so messed up and difficult for people my age. I also really loved his book, Game of Mates, How Favours Bleed the Nation, which tells the tale of economic theft across major sectors of Australia's economy, showing how well-connected politicians siphon off billions to line their own pockets. It also explains how much this costs the average Aussie and what we can do about it. So Cam, Game of Mates was published six years ago. Is Australia still as economically corrupt as it was then? <laughs> yeah, uh, funny you mention that. Um, since the book came out, people have asked me and sent me a lot of examples and said, you've got to update the book. So actually last year we did update the book and it's okay. been re-released. It's now called Rigged, oh, how right. networks of mates rip off everyday Australians. Okay. And it's revised and updated. Um, but yeah, the emails keep coming with yeah. examples. But I, I think to be clear, it's not really corruption, sort of the traditional way we think mm -hmm. about it. Uh, what I call it in the book is grey corruption or mm -hmm. political favouritism, which mm -hmm. is really this soft revolving door mm -hmm. reciprocation of favours over time. Yeah, handshakes. Which, which is often yeah. very legal, right? You know, okay. it's not illegal to lobby. Mm -hmm. It's not illegal to represent yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not illegal to finish as Premier one day and work for a oil company mm -hmm. lobbyist the mm -hmm. following day. Mm -hmm. But these are the mechanisms that sort of um, end up costing us because this network ends up favouring themselves. So mm -hmm. if there's political discretion over how to tax something or how to allocate a grant or how to sign a contract, then when mm -hmm. that discretion comes, you favour your mates yeah. who you're sharing that revolving door with. And that's the premise okay. of the book. Is there a sector or industry in which this is like most prevalent? Look, all large regulated industries, and in Australia, that's quite a lot, right? Yeah. So we have property, we have mining, <laughs> when we have banking, uh, yeah. essentially the main sectors of Australia's mm -hmm. economy, they're all heavily regulated. They're all reliant on political decisions mm -hmm. about mining rights, royalty regimes, uh, regulating credit in the banking sector, zoning, planning, taxation of property. So, you know... Australia doesn't have a, as broad an economy as you know places like Germany or mm -hmm. the United States or China mm -hmm. or even when you Canada. Say broad, what do you mean exactly? Broad as in lots of different sectors. So, for okay. example, uh, if th there are measures of this, mm -hmm. like uh, one of them is called the Index of Economic Complexity, mm -hmm. and it basically measures how many different types of products does your country export. Okay. And so you'll have a country like. Um, you know, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, where it's 90% oil. Mm -hmm. You'll have a country like Australia, where it's 50% coal and iron ore, and then a bunch of other minerals and agricultural products. Right. And then you'll have a country like Germany, which is like 20%, you know, medical machines, 20%, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know, intermediate manufacturing, robotic mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. and 10% this, and a whole mix yeah. of things. And not only is there a broad range, mm -hmm. the things they export don't get made in many countries. So they're also difficult to do. Right. Whereas Australia exports very basic things. Okay. Yeah. So these are this is sort mm -hmm. of a big picture of mm -hmm. where Australia is. 
You're reminding me that I need to play Tradle today. I haven't played it. Exactly. Well, I think Tradle <laughs> actually evolved out of these guys at Harvard. Ricardo Hausman and Cesar Hidalgo uh, started this index of economic complexity, mapping ah. the export composition. Okay. And and yeah. you know the for the last what? 20 years. And now they've got this online internet game yeah. that rivals Great. Wordle. Yeah. Do you play it? You'd be uh, so good at it. I wouldn't want to verse From you. time to time. But yeah. I use a lot of those examples in my classes when yeah. we talk about exports and global trade. It's very it's interesting. So what you're saying is Australia is a more, we're less diversified. Correct. You know, and in the rankings mm-hmm. of diversity, for mm-hmm. example, Australia used to be, I'm going to just make up some numbers. Okay. You know, there's 150 countries that are in this measure and okay. Australia used to be 30 and now we're 90. In terms of? In terms of the metric of how diverse our export basket is of the different types of things. So we've become less diverse. Because we don't make cars and export them anymore, for right. example. But is we do a lot way? more of the same things. So we do a lot more coal and iron ore. Are a lot of countries moving that way? They're becoming less diversified with time or uh, is it just an Australian thing? No. So, I mean, a lot of Asian countries are getting more diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the top the top five are usually Switzerland, Germany, the United States, China, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and they're they're pretty comfortably mm-hmm. at the top. But Australia's a little bit unique just just because of our small size and the relative mm-hmm. size of our resources. Yeah. Um, and the question is, do we want to change policy to make get a different outcome? Mm. So, you know, in the United States at the moment, they have that uh, the subsidies for. Uh, what do they call it? Rehoming manufacturing, bringing mm-hmm. manufacturing yeah, back. Yeah. So they've got record manufacturing construction there. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, do we want to do that? Is that going to be full of favours yeah. to selected groups? Does it matter if right. it's full of favours because it'll be worth it collectively yeah, in the end? Does it pay off? Yeah. These these are the questions. This yeah. is the sort of broad picture of Australia's yeah. economy. Yeah. So if we were to to do more of that, would it be in the automotive industry? Like, what industries do you think? would have a chance at coming back. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very tricky. Mm-hmm. It's very well, Look at any country trying mm. to develop, right? Mm. Um, look at the Asian targets, so South Korea, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to go from basic industries to a broad range of advanced industries. Mm. It's hard to start launching satellites and making mm. aeroplanes if you can't make cars. Yeah. Right? So... Um, and the history of Australia after the Second World War was we'd make horse carriages. So Holden used to make the carriages for the horses. And then we had, you know, protectionist economic policy. Mm-hmm. So all the American car makers had a certain quota. They could bring in 2,000 cars a month or whatever the number was. And after that, they could only bring parts. And so they would bring in some cars and then they'd send the parts to Holden and they'd make horse carriages and then they'd assemble the sort of parts of the American cars and then over time, they did more and more of that and then made more and more components. And then we had a car industry for you know, mm-hmm. many decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's difficult. Uh, I think that's a conversation we're not having. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. We're kind of all in on free markets. We're good at farming and digging mm-hmm. and selling houses to each other. Mm-hmm. Let's just do that. Mm-hmm. It's working fine, but... You know, it's a conversation we could yeah. probably have. Well, I've seen you tweeting a bit about nuclear energy. Oh, lately, yeah. Getting straight into it. Do you think in terms of, you know, the economics of it, is that an industry that could, that, you know, has a future here perhaps? Yeah. Look, mm. I think that's one of those types of areas where, mm. yeah, you probably need some subsidies to mm. do it the first few times, like mm-hmm. any new industry. Um but it's a big, complicated thing that needs a lot of different experts and specialties and mm-hmm. associated industries. 
And so not only for the long-term reliable energy, and that's, you know, another debate uh, yeah. about uh, the investment we're making. And, you know, I hosted Aidan Morrison mm-hmm. on my mm-hmm. Substack talking about mm-hmm. that, um, that just the cost of having a, an electricity network with variable generation from renewables is so high compared to stable generation like mm-hmm. gas, coal or nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a pathway for A, a, a more reliable low-cost grid mm-hmm. and B, a pathway to diversifying manufacturing. And, mm-hmm. and people who want, for example, high-speed rail and mm-hmm. things like that, like, um, you know, really economy-changing investments, you're going to need a lot of just electricity, cheap, yeah. reliable, constant, mm-hmm. <laughs> running your high-speed mm-hmm. rail. Mm-hmm. It's so, yeah, I, I see lots of opportunities there. And I th- my impression is the debate has shifted a lot in the last yeah, couple of years. definitely. Not just in Australia, but globally. Mm-hmm. I think the 2030s, it's going to be a nuclear renaissance. Mm. I think the next four or five years, mm. a lot of countries are going to cut deals mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and all your major, you know, Korean, Canadian, American mm-hmm. nuclear businesses are going to yeah. be just booming. So in our part of the world, in the Asia-Pacific, um, as you mentioned, Korea uses nuclear energy, Japan, China, China India. India Now Dubai's well. just opened its first, okay. you know, in, near Abu Dhabi in the UAE, there's, they've just opened yeah. a reactor that was built by the Koreans. Right. Um, and they it's signed that contract 14 years ago. They got four reactors running. Right. So, so perhaps we'd need Korean help as well with our first few because we... Yeah. It's it's always going to be like mm. that. We're yeah. not going to just, you know, put an ad on seek.com and someone's <laughs> going to go you're you're the you're the boss you're in charge of nuclear. <laughs> It'll be a bunch of Americans, yeah. Canadians, Koreans, mm. people who've built their career on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is this is the same thing when China grows, right? Mm-hmm. China's car industry, one of the original deals was getting Audi to make engines in China, mm-hmm. for example. And mm-hmm. so all the German experts went there and trained up mm-hmm. and, and nurtured that eco- ecosystem mm-hmm. of, of local talent. We'd have to do the same thing. So what resistance, if any, would there be from other energy industries in Australia. Yeah, yeah, that's heaps. (laughs) Do you think that's part of the reason why the moratorium has... Is still there. Still there, or is that getting a bit conspiratorial on my part? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think think there is power in electoral momentum. So Mm -hmm. when the people have shifted and changed Mm -hmm. their mind, the political party that promises that will get, you know, it becomes worth it. So I think there is a a feedback Mm -hmm. mechanism there. And... What you see in the surveys, not just in Australia but globally, mm-hmm. is everyone under 40 just wants nuclear energy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're aging out of the fear of nuclear mm-hmm. energy. And, I, you know, I think that's happening in the next decade in terms mm-hmm. of the electoral balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what's going to change it. Now, you're right that there's a lot of interest groups in solar, people signing deals with big wind farms who require certain transmission investments to make that viable. That's okay. I don't mm-hmm. mind having too much energy, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, nuclear is going to take a while. So it's not like the su- delivery of electricity is going to undercut mm-hmm. prices today. Mm-hmm. So people are going to make money on their investments currently. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there probably is a little pushback, but, mm. you know, probably those organisations will get involved. Yeah. If they're already in energy and transmission, yeah. they might get involved anyway mm. if nuclear is part of the mix. What else do you see 
in the future of Australia for, you know, people my age who are going to be having kids soon and, like, what what will my kids – and I know you can't, you're not, like, a soothsayer <laughs> or anything, but – Yeah, let me just you – know. uh... <laughs> Well, I think I asked you one time on Twitter, like, is it true that my generation is worse off yeah. economically or financially? It feels like that. Yeah. Um, look, that's a tricky question. Mm. Um, honestly, it's very hard to compare mm-hmm. to 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Just because the, the, the amount of options you have in your life has yep. radically changed. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of ability to travel and work mm-hmm. abroad... Mm-hmm. You know, now work from home and, and mm-hmm. different variations on the theme uh, are so much higher. Mm-hmm. The big issue seems to be about housing, mm. right? Um, the generational gap in housing. So when the boomers were growing up, we were still sort of collectively of the view that government should make sure people get houses. Mm-hmm. And some people argue that that sort of backfired because it created this homeowning class that wanted their biggest asset to keep going up in value. Um, and so I think that's the real trick. Um, so you, you would tend to b- agree with that? Yeah. So I've got a little bit more of a subtle view. Mm-hmm. It's not that the market for rent or housing is abnormal. Mm-hmm. So I've got a book coming out next year called The Great Housing Hijack, which okay. is actually about, you know, what what's going on in the housing policy debate and why do we feel like this, mm-hmm. right? Shouldn't things be getting better and easier mm-hmm. all the time? Mm-hmm. And with housing, it seemed like we stopped. Mm. Why? Mm. <laughs> Backwards, yeah. Um, and, and the answer is not that the market is doing anything different. I think the answer is that we are not intervening or offering public alternatives like we used to. So we don't have the Commonwealth housing um, support schemes we used mm-hmm. to have that funded tens of thousands of new dwellings mm-hmm. uh, for, for home buyers for 25 mm. years. We got home ownership up from pre-World War II. It was, it was below 50% in the urban areas mm. and it got up to 71.5% by 1970. Wow. So those post-war decades saw radical change. Mm-hmm. And so the baby boomers grew up during that, right? Mm-hmm. So they started buying houses in the 70s and 80s. And so they sort of got the tail end of it. And then in the 80s, we sort of changed our mind and said, mm. you know, governments don't do things anymore. Mm. Governments just regulate things. Mm-hmm. Why would we build houses for people? Why would we mm. subsidise that? Why would we own the telephone mm. network? That's just mm. silly. So more right? laissez-faire. So and so we just get mm. – it's not like, like there weren't market outcomes, mm. but now it's harder to escape the market right. outcomes. So if mm-hmm. you, for example, are uh, more you – know, Let's just say you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. So my parents were teachers. Both my parents are teachers. They got free university because mm-hmm. there was a shortage of teachers. And then they got shipped around and they had a really good middle class life as a teacher. Um, very tricky as a teacher today mm-hmm. to do what my mm-hmm. parents did. Now, that's partly the housing market maybe in many areas, but it's partly just the reordering of what sort of jobs make what as well. So I think our expectation of what sort of career is middle class Mm. is different. So you might, you know, I I know people who make more money as plumbers and electricians than as academics. So previously it might Mm -hmm. have been, well, you know, you you study hard, you do this, you get your middle class Mm -hmm. class career. But we've got this sort of different, and I'm not, I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's great that Australian tradies make a good living. That's an Aussie thing, right? Because... I know when when I was living in Spain, like the the tradies there yeah. don't live like the tradies here, for example. No, it's kind of Australia, Canada, mm. North North, North American Australia. Oh, well. um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, probably Australia is the more extreme in yeah. terms of like the hourly rate that yeah. you make. How do we explain to... that? How, why did it shift like that? So you know, think about um, you know the push to get everyone through university, mm-hmm. right? So I think we've sort of engineered policy to sort of flood the market with managers yeah. or academics yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. and sort of pretended that these trades aren't you know, super important to a modern economy. Yeah. And and now, you know, that, that's good if you're mm. making money there, but I don't know if that's great as a society. I mm. don't know what's right or wrong. Mm. Um, but it, it could be a lot to do with that. You know, I had a guy I knew, um, you know, was selling IT software mm. and after the financial crisis went and poured concrete because it made more money, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Um, which is great if mm-hmm. you're pouring concrete. It's not an easy job. He didn't last that long. Mm. Um but it is, I think, um, the way we think about the hierarchy of jobs and go, mm. oh, look, it's harder for me today. Mm. Well, is it? Mm. Maybe if you're an electrician, it's not harder today. Mm. Maybe it's easier yeah. to have a good business. Yeah, true. Yeah. So I, I just don't yeah. know. It's at definitely the end of the... not the best time to be like a humanities-brained girl who <laughs> loves to just like study philosophy at uni. Period. Yeah. Well, we're not. <laughs> see, and the university is mm. the same, right? So mm. if you're going to get half the people through university instead of 15%, well, you used to take the top 15. So all those types of mm. careers were really scarce or valuable. Mm-hmm. And now you just can pick from anyone who's got these degrees. Or yeah. So, look, I don't know how much of it that is. Yeah. A good side of that is you can just go to university and, and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of additional choice there as well. Mm. So it's it's just so hard to mm-hmm. tell. And I think we get swept up in this, yeah. oh, it was easier for my parents. Mm. It was easier for some parents, mm. maybe the teachers. I mm-hmm. don't think I would want to be a teacher. Mm. I see a lot of ads mm-hmm. for economics teachers and I thought, mm. I think I'd be all right at that. And then I look what they're paying and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to take. Yeah. I'm not going to look after 30 teenagers who don't no. want to learn economics yeah. and deal with the administration, the marking, mm-hmm. the behavior mm. when, when I've got better options, right? Mm. So definitely I can see mm-hmm. um, in certain key areas mm-hmm. – um, there's, there's some issues. And when it comes to home ownership, is there an argument that it's not a good metric to care about? Like, does it really matter that lots of people own their own homes or not? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> mm. Depends what they're paying to rent, I guess, doesn't yeah. it? So mm. um, if mm. you look at countries where renters are well protected from rapidly rising rents mm-hmm. and have a lot of security and rides, mm-hmm. if you go to Switzerland or Germany or Austria, mm-hmm. you know, half the people live in rented houses. This is a wealthy country. These, mm. are, these are very wealthy countries. Um which you would expect to be able to have high ownership, mm-hmm. ownership. But because the gains aren't worth it f- for people because the security of renting is so strong, mm-hmm. you know, you can, there's social renting options, mm-hmm. even the private market, you get protected quite well. People can live in the same house for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Then there's less incentive to become a homeowner. So I don't think it, one is good or bad, mm-hmm. but if you want to have a private rental market that's very hands-off, you know, rents go 10%, go and kick your tenants out and reshuffle people around, then home ownership is a good objective because people get insulated from that. And I often say home ownership is the ultimate rent control, right? Mm. Because your landlord doesn't put the rent up on you ever. (laughs) So it's almost like that's one way to escape the variability and the unexpected changes Mm -hmm. in rent. So if I'm Mm -hmm. a teacher, I've got a very stable income in Mm -hmm. my career. 
uh, and if the rents in my neighbourhood or my part of the if the rents go up quickly because mm-hmm. there's a big change to the composition of people, well, I can't. You know, I've got this career job. My income's not keeping up with yours to outbid you for mm-hmm. rents. You know, what am I supposed to do? I mm-hmm. get reshuffled around. Mm-hmm. I get kicked out. Whereas if I own the home, mm-hmm. that can happen yeah. and I, I can stay there. So obviously renting, you know, changes from state to state here. But in general in Australia, are we one of the most like hands-off nations when it comes to rent control, would you say? If you compare us to Europe, that's the case. Okay. Yeah, sim- I mean, North so America is pretty, pretty relaxed about that. And have that. we become more Americanized in terms of renting over uh, time? No, it's been pretty... Pre- uh, like, if anything, standards are improving. Okay. If you look at a multi-decade mm-hmm. period, uh, you know, we require smoke detectors now. Yeah. We require okay. lockable windows. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was a hilarious new minimum rental standard. I don't know if it was Queensland or Victoria. It said you must have a door on the toilet. You can't, you know, your room with the toilet must have a door. Interesting. And I'm like, hmm, wow, it's 2023. I'm glad we've got that standard now. But, (laughs) you know, it's kind of, I think sometimes it's it's, it's very hard to compare. Yeah. So I think, you know, the average house is bigger and better Mm -hmm. than it ever was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we complain about how dodgy Australian houses Let me is. complain, Cam, please. But I'll give you an interesting <laughs> example, right? So Let me be sad. No. If you go to like the slum reviews of Victoria in the, in the 1930s. Slum? Slum reviews. There were so many slums in oh, the okay. cities right. and everyone was sick all the time. You know, really? People, mm. there's no um, sewers or fresh water. So there was just... Oh, in Victoria or Victorian in, times? No, in Victoria in oh. the 1930s. Really? Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Victoria, Australia, in Melbourne, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. and a lot of the modern rules around, you know, at that time, there was no such thing as a rental tenants agency, mm. right? Rents were just contracts between yeah. two people. Mm-hmm. And there were no requirements on it. And, you know, the, the slum review guys said, you know, people cannot store food in their home because there's so many rats running right. around because there's so many horse stables and just, mm. you know, people are keeping animals and horses everywhere. Mm. And so people couldn't keep food and they'd hang food from strings from the roof and mm-hmm. try and, you know, so rats couldn't get to mm-hmm. it with little traps and mechanisms. Oh. And all the kids were sick all the time. Mm. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's nice to appreciate the positives, mm-hmm. but I think because the change the boomers experienced mm-hmm. was so radical and so positive for so many decades, when we don't see improvement, we're like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we've just why I've been we've been treading water for thirty mm. years. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, I don't understand economics very well, but surely things can't just get better and better and better and right. Like there's got to be booms and busts. And well, like- I think can, things can get better and better. Mm. Um, I think um, just our ability to reorganize more efficiently, to use new knowledge we acquire that we needed the last. You know. We couldn't have got nuclear power in the 1800s, but mm-hmm. we could have got it in the 1900s mm-hmm. because we had all that previous industrial investment. Mm-hmm. So we could refine certain materials. And I think that happens now, the changes with IT. So I think, yeah, we can get better. I mm-hmm. like to be optimistic mm-hmm. over the long run, but I don't think it's a, a beautiful exponential Linear. curve. Yeah. Um, this is one thing economists, I think, often forget Mm -hmm. is they celebrate the long-run growth and this is all the great stuff and forget that almost without fail economies go in boom and bust cycles Mm -hmm. and that's why we use monetary policy and fiscal policy to try and smooth that out so we kind of know it but we kind of forget quite often Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i 
you know, I expect there'll be corrections mm-hmm. in the next, mm. by the end of the decade. Yeah. I don't know exactly when. And um, on on Twitter, you've got in your bio, independent thinker, which I like, which is maybe why we have some connection with Colette. Yeah. But um, in if you had to put yourself in in a box, like what type of economic philosophies do you sort of fit more in line with yeah, your thinking? It's funny because I, I wrote an article on, on the Substack, Fresh Economic okay. Thinking, right? So I, yeah. I wrote one that said, um, you know, what's my economic religion or okay. something? Because I do feel like a lot of the time people find something they can relate to and then they just push that. Like mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is my God now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to worship this. Mm-hmm. I see, I, you know, I feel that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, but guys, this is really good. This helps explain things. Mm-hmm. I feel that. But... I think in the last decade or so, so since my PhD, mm-hmm. and you know, I credit Paul Fried as my PhD mm-hmm. supervisor for just sort of beating out of me this unrigorous mm-hmm. thinking. I think now I can see the insights in lots of different areas okay. and balance them up a little without having to say, you know, Keynes was right or, mm. you know, Hayek was right mm-hmm. about innovation markets. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, well, of course, there's an element of truth there. Mm-hmm. He didn't invent that from not observing the world. Mm-hmm. He, he, that was his attempt at understanding the world. And Keynes mm-hmm. had his insights into mm-hmm. the sort of public sector mechanism as well and the treasury. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. And mm-hmm. there's, there's going to be both. And you've got to sort of, there's an art form, I think, over time of learning to contextualize that. So online, I get called, you know, during COVID, I was saying, you know, it's probably not a good idea to lock people down because, yeah. you know, that's thing we do every day when we go out and we meet people mm-hmm. and we socialize and we work. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly what makes us rich mm. and makes us live a long time because, mm. you know, rich places live a long time. Mm. If we stop doing the things every day that make mm. us rich, mm. we won't be rich and all these mm. unintended side, side mm. effects will occur. So I got yeah. called, you know, the grandma killing libertarian or whatever. Yeah. But then when I say, you know, the public hospital system works quite well and we should reduce subsidies to private insurers because mm-hmm. um, they're not adding a lot of value or the government should just build houses for people because, you know, everyone loves investing in housing except the public, you know, Mm. except the government. Mm -hmm. We all think we're going to make a fortune. The government says, no, it's too expensive. Blows my mind. Mm. So then they call me a raving communist lefty whatever. That's cool. You can't be placed. You can't be pinned. um, And and I think, you know, I have friends from all across the spectrum and and I think think most Aussies are a bit like that Mm. if you really – Hmm. Ask them, what do you think? Yeah, we're not as polarized, you know, in terms of like libertarian economics or, yeah, we tend to be quite centrist from what I understand. Even I know like Keating like really changed a lot of Australia's economy, but still it was quite. Yeah, it didn't go too crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why we live so well here. It's one of those mysteries about Australia, how things function very well. you know, you can complain about the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and you can complain about town planning. You know, I mm-hmm. research property and housing, mm-hmm. so I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. But then you've just got to go to a country that doesn't function well yeah. and you just, you know, your jaw drops. Like, I'm complaining about yeah. bureaucracy that takes mm-hmm. 10 minutes. These mm-hmm. guys will send it to me in a yeah. month maybe, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. But that's why I think books like yours, like Game of Mates or um, Rigged, um, is so important because we do have it good we it's great but we need to keep on yeah. top of it we need to prune you know and it's people like you who prune it so that's good uh, i think you're totally right and and so I, i've been thinking a lot more about this 
pruning mm-hmm. idea that you've mm-hmm. just brought up mm-hmm. on a broad sense. Um, so, for example, economists don't like monopolies, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not, to be honest, it's not exactly clear why, because monopolies are responsive to prices and they vary their output. I think the, the, the true concern about monopoly is that you can't prune the monopoly, right? So the competitor is what mm-hmm. comes in and prunes them, forces mm-hmm. them to update stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to change large organisations as well. And so, you know, you, even if your monopolist has the best of intentions, just turning that ship is too hard. Mm-hmm. So competition can do that by starting a new organisation of human mm-hmm. beings cooperating for an outcome, whether mm-hmm. it's in business or politics, mm-hmm. and we can just get rid of that one and replace it with the better one, right? So there's this pruning process mm-hmm. that competition does like in the economy. To, yeah. and, and one of the things I've been really thinking more about mm-hmm. is how to do that in the public sector, whether mm-hmm. that's in health, education, infrastructure, mm-hmm. any of the bureaucracies, well, can you start a competitor organization with similar responsibilities and let it compete with the existing one? And after two years, whoever can do a better job keeps the job, right? right. So you can almost sort of uh, build in that pruning right. process. Like- I don't know. You know, it's very difficult. Like generate competition just Internally. for that reason. Yeah, to yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, there's probably circumstances where we don't want it. We don't want schools mm-hmm. to go broke and then mm-hmm. close them down because there's a whole bunch of families relying on it. But there might be elements around that. And, and you know, we incorporate that when we do tenders for construction project and whatever. We make sure there's new people coming in mm-hmm. and tendering and seeing if they can do a better job. And so we do incorporate it to a degree. And I do wonder if there's more ways we can do that mm. um, just to make sure we're, we're staying on top of yeah. it. Because I do think countries go in cycles of mm-hmm. you know, deteriorating ability, quality of yeah. public sector management, mm-hmm. particularly uh, and then, you know, reinvigoration. And the question is, do we, how can we avoid getting too bad before we improve mm. by having something like that? Do you have any info on the salaries of public service workers? Because they do seem to have, from what I can see, shot yeah. through the roof. Uh, yeah, Australians are reasonably well paid. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, it sort of depends on levels and areas. Mm. And yeah, yeah. So if you're the head mm. of... Uh, a go- who was the recent person who got kicked out of their nine hundred thousand dollar a year job? Oh. So I, I don't mind paying people, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. good money. Mm-hmm. The, the trick is building in this accountability and this yeah. pruning, and not mm-hmm. letting them sit there for eight years getting mm-hmm. a million bucks a year mm-hmm. and not delivering. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it's fine to do that mm-hmm. if they're accountable. Yeah, and you know that that's why. In business, there's a little bit more of, well, we'll, we'll pay them, but if it mm-hmm. goes bad, we're going to pay you in some equity as well. Yeah. So, you, mm. you know. mm-hmm. so we, we could incorporate Improve that more. That. It's, yeah. To be honest, there's a lot of trial and error in yeah. getting these systems in place, and mm-hmm. I think we have to accept that as well. well I can't mm-hmm. just say, this is my solution, it's going to work. Yeah. I'm re- a real fan of piloting. Okay, mm-hmm. in this new area, we're mm-hmm. going to trial this in the education sector, yeah. health or whatever, yeah. in the town planning, mm-hmm. we're going to trial this for mm. two years. And we can copy what other countries have done, right? Like exactly. um, you you were the first person to introduce me to the Singaporean system of – Singapore is such an interesting country mm. in general, but um, 
yeah, their housing. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. so Singapore is an interesting mm-hmm. country because if you go to organisations uh, like the Heritage Foundation who mm-hmm. do these indexes of liberty or mm-hmm. for indexes mm-hmm. of, ec- of economic mm-hmm. freedom, mm-hmm. they'll put Singapore really high up. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, but Singapore is really, really strict with its social rules and mm-hmm. crime, mm-hmm. you know, rules about crime. But also it's got this massive public sector housing provider that's mm. built 80% of all the houses in the country, all the dwellings, they're all apartments. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, again, maybe I relate because I feel like I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I like the best of both worlds yeah. when it comes to economic principles. Uh, but the Singapore system is essentially a public option. So it's like a public school or a public hospital. Any resident uh, who's over 21 can apply in a, as a couple uh, to purchase from the housing. No singles? Singles have to wait till they're 30-something. Okay. Um, which, again... Encouraging people to get... Yeah. To pair up. That's right. So, again, you know, index of very economic freedom. Hang on. This is yeah. very socially engineered. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing they have is racial quotas for each housing project. Yeah. Because when, yeah. when Singapore became independent in yeah. 1965, there's a lot of tension between the Malays, yeah. the Indians, mm-hmm. the Chinese, etc. So there's a bit of a social engineering aspect. Mm-hmm. But essentially, they have a public option. So if mm-hmm. I wanted to buy an apartment, I could go to the private sector and buy whatever they're selling, or I could put an application in to buy off the plan from the HDB, or I could buy in the secondary market. Like a, It's not on Gumtree, it's through mm-hmm. real estate agents, mm-hmm. but a second-hand one from a seller of a housing development board um, you know, apartment. Yeah. And we would do our, uh, our own contract mm-hmm. for that. But... The trick there is that the only person who can buy one of those HDB is a mm-hmm. resident who qualifies. Okay. Um, and all those residents have the option of the discounted new one as well. So that mm-hmm. anchors the price. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed a, uh, uh, a young couple there who just moved into their HDB apartment and they paid something like 350000 Singapore mm-hmm. dollars, mm-hmm. which is about 350000 Aussie. Mm-hmm. And they said they, they waited two years. So that's about the normal. So if you buy off the plan, very similar to here. Mm-hmm. And they said if they bought in the private market, it'd be nearly a million Singapore wow. dollars. Um, and there's enough. If you could even buy something similar, which you can't because it's right. very differentiated um, because everyone just gets HDB. Right. <laughs> so, and all the H- HDB. Housing Development Board, yeah. And they're all pretty much the same sort of dwelling. There's not no, a No, no. So, you can go from studios to five-bedroom executive suites oh, okay. and they have multi-generational. So, there's part of this social engineering is encouraging kids to look after their parents so mm-hmm. if you have if you apply for example for an off the plan apartment with a like granny flat mm-hmm. room uh you'll get like a, a, if there's a queue for that project you'll get you know ahead of the queue because you're bringing in your parent and looking after them so interesting so, so um it seems like you're quite quite a fan i think the principle is basically mm-hmm. The key here, the mm-hmm. principle of having this public alternative mm-hmm. at a discount mm-hmm. in a parallel system mm-hmm. that you can trade and where it's home ownership and the person who buys it can paint the walls whatever color, change the carpet. In fact, you can buy off the plan like empty. So you do your mm-hmm. own kitchen, door handles, light fittings, yes. etc. I think that fits culturally, right? So if we want to have non-market options, public rental targeted at the lowest income has a lot of issues. Universal home ownership with options at all different income levels in every city, I think, is how you want to do it. A little Sounds bit, great. A little bit like schools and hospitals, right? We put them everywhere. Everyone's got the option. Are any politicians considering this? Is it even... So the most interest... Uh, I mean, I'm talking to people in lots of states and the federal government. Um, 
there's interest in Canberra of piloting a similar thing uh, for teachers and nurses. Um, in Canberra, people don't realise, but all the new housing subdivisions are actually done by the Territory Government. They're, they do all the new estates and subdivisions. Um, so they could easily just allocate uh, through a different sort of ownership structure uh, these dwellings to pilot it for nurses, whoever they want, right? So there's no private development? You can redevelop privately. Okay. So existing housing lots that right. you might put townhouses or apartments on mm-hmm. uh, and in the city centre redeveloping, that's all privately done, but all the conversion of non-urban to urban use is done by the, the Territory Government. They make mm. hundreds of millions of dollars a year in profit doing it. <laughs> and so that's good for the, for the residents? In, it's almost indistinguishable, right? Mm. They could have a signed Lend-Lease Stockland or one of the other big guys out the front, but they don't. It says the Suburban Land Agency. So they essentially operate in the same way. Mm. But, you know, they pay less tax there because um, the government's making making the gains on, on real estate. Okay. Sydney seems to be, like, one of the worst cities for renting. Mm. And, you know, I'm just talking out of my butt here. But just looking <laughs> at the geography, you know, mm. I've just moved to the east and it's like you can't – there's no more. Like, you're on the edge of – you know, like, how much – um, without building up, people have to go sprawl out, right? Like, Yeah, well, most cities do both all mm-hmm. the time. Sydney's actually one of the more dense in terms of the proportion of attached dwellings being developed. Um, attached dwellings. Like a townhouses and apartments. Okay. Yeah, Sydney's one of the more dense and it's doing more mm-hmm. attached housing redevelopment mm-hmm. than anywhere else. And, you know, people are good at substituting, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't do lots more detached or mm-hmm. if it's, you know, in a low-value area... Um, people will substitute and and buy the new townhouses elsewhere and mm-hmm. pay for the location instead mm-hmm. of the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that happens. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's interesting that you jump to the physical layout of mm-hmm. Sydney mm-hmm. when you said Sydney's expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens in housing a lot. Mm-hmm. We th- we have an economic issue about the pricing of housing, mm-hmm. and we think it must have to, something to do with the physical mm-hmm. shape of the houses. Mm-hmm whether they're stacked up or next to each other or they're pink or blue or green. But I think the economics really explains the pricing. It's essentially Sydney's full of rich people. That is why it's expensive. If Sydney was full of poor people, it would be very cheap. Is it true that's, that... <laughs> there's, um, the, there's my short answer to yeah, pricing. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And it's not just that they, they live here, right? It's that a lot of rich people who don't live in Sydney own property in Sydney. Yeah, that's that true. Correct? But, uh, of course, they can buy property anywhere they want mm-hmm. and... Sydney's got to outcompete buying expensive riverfront property in Brisbane or, you know, uh, anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. So there are limits to how expensive it can be mm-hmm. um, because every million dollars you waste in Sydney could buy you, you know, two apartments in Brisbane. And so it can't, mm-hmm. you know, it can't just mm-hmm. do its own thing. Mm. There's an economic relationship. But do you think there should be a limit on how many investment properties someone can? Well, yeah, that's you know. a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so funny thing in speaking of Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, so their concern was this small slither of households, 10% mm-hmm. who aren't HDB, are being bought by foreign foreigners. And so they increased the stamp duty. So the payment that you pay the government when you purchase a property uh, their stamp duty for foreign buyers ranges between 30 and 60% of the price. Wow. Mm. What's stamp duty here? Uh, stamp duty here is between 3 and 5.5%. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Hmm. So 10, wow. 10 30 times. 30 and 60? Yeah, 3 zero. So you've got to pay, wow. you know, 50% more. So your million-dollar place is going to be yeah. a million to the I'm seller sure and one and a half to the, the Singapore government. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what they did. But I guess I'm not super concerned. I think, yes, there's some price effect. But, mm-hmm. you know, if the yield falls, so, you know, you pay a million dollars, you're only getting 10000 10, a year in net rent, let's just say. If I'm a foreigner, there's still lots of other places for me to put a million dollars and make more than 10000 a year, maybe with less risk. Um, so, you know, the one of the reasons that foreign buying can increase prices is because there is a, an additional non-monetary payoff to this type mm-hmm. of asset compared to all their other investment alternatives. Mm-hmm. So you might go, oh, you're only getting a 1% yield in Sydney buying this premium property. Uh, <coughs> Capital gains, we're not sure, you know, it's very risky. Um, but there is a huge gain from having an Australian asset rather than a Chinese or, you know, Malaysian or mm. whatever asset or Indian. You know, th- there's an, an un- non-monetary value there, so you pay a premium price for that. Mm. So that, that can be a thing. But in the 2010s when there was a lot of foreign buying, it probably had a bit of a price effect for that reason, right? So we had a lot of foreign buying, a lot of apartment boom construction, and then during COVID, we just lowered interest rates anyways to get the prices up. Mm. So I'm like, well, we all panicked about high prices because maybe we thought there were foreign buyers mm-hmm. who would accept a lower yield. Then we just reduced the interest rate to lower everyone's yields. Mm-hmm. So everyone can now pay the higher prices. Mm-hmm. Is that better or worse? I, I don't know. Okay. Like that's another funny thing in housing is when prices go down, we panic. You know, we've got to lower interest rates, can't have a housing crash. Prices go up, we panic. Yeah. Oh, no, people can't afford houses. Yeah. We have to pick one, right? Yeah. And so that's, again, why I think this parallel alternative, if prices are going up, going down, people can at least go, oh, that's risky. I'm going to you know, buy something off the plan from the public housing company yeah. or buy a secondhand one in a neighbourhood um, and just I'm not going to deal with timing the market and all of that. So yeah. anyway, that's my big... Picture view on those things. Okay. I'm thinking a lot. I'm not sure if this is in your ballpark, but I'll see. Um, (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about people who live in remote communities and how there's obvious disadvantage there. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on whether that's just inevitable that the Mm -hmm. further you live from these Mm -hmm. um, cities, these sort of economic hubs – you know, if there's anything to be done or said for living remotely. As in the the problems of getting houses built in Indigenous communities or the cost of just living and getting your groceries, Everything, that's a huge I issue. Everything, I suppose. It, uh, I mean, healthcare, yeah. um, job opportunities. Like, you know, Australia is such a massive nation. Um, is it just that we... we we have to live in cities if, if we want to... No, look, money. I mean, we started in cities and we mm. sort of moved out and mm. farmed the mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as we get better at farming, there's mm. less people need to live there because mm. we can drive out there faster, mm. we can use mm-hmm. more machines. Mm-hmm. So people can live in the city mm-hmm. and then at harvest time they can just drive out, mm-hmm. everyone convenes, does what they need and go mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just a product of what we call agglomeration effects. Mm-hmm. Like there's more options when we all live near each other mm-hmm. and when we don't have to because we can 
use machines and drive fast and fly around. We don't. So look at mining, all right? Mining towns used to have lots of people because of the mine. Now it's got no one because we just fly in. So, yeah, I think, that, I mean, that's happening all around the world. Um, people like living near each other and there, there are efficiencies uh, from it. So, um, it, yeah, it's, it's a, an economic force that is hard to combat unless there is a real important reason to be at a location, like a mine or a natural resource or... Okay. Yeah. And another question. Um, I remember a, a tweet, I think it was a poll, a question you'd asked, is there an ideal amount of immigration to yeah. Australia? Immigration rate. I'd love to chat to you a bit about, yeah, your thoughts on immigration and how it affects. Yeah, well, I'll try and quickly summarise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration is good. Mm-hmm. The question is how quickly you do it because mm-hmm. the the economy adjusts at a certain rate. Mm-hmm. We build houses at a certain rate. We invest in you know, capital and you know, roads and schools and whatnot. And because those investments are such a huge share of the economy, so you know, investments are a third of the economy, just building this buildings and houses and roads and stuff. Um, so there's a big difference if you're growing at half a percent, one and a half percent, or three percent. You know, um, so yeah, my, I guess my general th- rule of thumb is if you're growing at 1% or less, it's m- very manageable. If you're growing at 2% or more, then that adjustment is going to have flow on mm-hmm. effects through housing, through the inability to catch up with certain things. Do you know what Australia is growing at? It's about two, a bit over two. So Canada right now is three, which wow. is like world record. Um, I think it's a bit temporary this year. Mm. There's a bit of catch up growth of okay. students and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think in in my ideal world, it's you know um, closer okay. to one. one. Does that include people on temporary visas, like student visas and stuff? Yeah, yeah. How do they so, count? so yeah. it's you've got to oh, you've got to reside twelve out of sixteen months in the country, and then okay. you count it as you know being a resident uh, mm. in the resident population. Yeah, okay. yeah. so that's mm. how it works. So I think okay. it's a funny debate because again, it's a polarizing one. Some people want to you know, one in, one out, close the border. And, you know, I was the only person in COVID saying don't close the border, right? One of the few people. And now apparently, no, 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 open the border, fully open. Mm. I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Mm. Can we just um, be reasonable Mm -hmm. about this? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's some perverse effects in education as well when universities um, just want to select everyone. Uh, You know, I've taught master's classes that are almost all foreign students because master's degrees get you more points for various parts of the visa system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the top third is amazing. Come from the central banks of treasuries of big companies around the world and the rest will tell me, you know, I'm here mm. for points for my visa. Mm. I've already studied this topic. I hope I can do it because my English is bad because mm. I already studied it. Mm. So there's a few perverse outcomes and I think mm-hmm. just, you know, managing the rate is, mm-hmm. solves a lot of those things, mm. yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to... No, that was a fun chat. I'm sure we'll have to talk again. Yeah. So your book, Rigged, is available? Rigged is available everywhere. Okay. And uh, The Great Housing Hijack will be out at the end of February next year. Great. Looking forward to it. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for coming and talking to me. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah. Bye.